Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Bluff City Church, Memphis, Tennessee. God, I come before you today knowing that I have prepared words to say, um, that you have shaped this sermon not once, not twice, but almost five times. And so I pray that as I say these things and share these stories, um, that they might be helpful, that they point to the beauty of who you are and the work that you are doing. And so in your name I pray. Amen. Okay, I realize that um, probably not a lot of you know my story. I think I've been here um, seven months now, maybe a little less, but um, you might have seen my interviews with Tom that I first did or uh, the one where Sam asked me if I was in a zombie apocalypse what weapon of choice I'd use, and I said an axe. Um, because if I'm allowed to brag on myself for two seconds, I'm really good at axe throwing. If you ever had an interest in doing that, please contact me. I'd love to go with you. Um, be prepared for me to show you up. Again, I am very good, and I'm just going to set the bar high for you. Uh, so I, so I prepped for this sermon. I found it important um, for you to get a larger glimpse at my story in order to understand why and how the understanding of who Jesus is kind of fundamentally shaped who I am. So I grew up in a small town, um, population 2,029 people. I checked, that is what the sign says. Uh, there was one blinking stoplight, um, just like at the intersection where the donut shop was. That's it, that's all we had, one light. And one high school. My Sunday school teacher was also my assistant principal. So that, that was kind of weird, but interesting and fun. And I have no complaints there in case she ever watches us. Um, at one point in my childhood, I lived next to both the county judge who had this really big handlebar mustache who went to church with me and shared a fence with our pastor who we called Brother Baker. His wife and him were amazing. They would bake desserts and then they would come bring them to the fence. We would take the plate and then we'd bake them desserts and give it back to them. Great system. It was amazing. That was like really good pastoral care there. It was me getting brownies at least once a week. I attended uh, Southern Baptist Church, where, again, Brother Baker was a pastor. Um, and in this small town of 2,000 people, I'll say that there are 19 churches that pull up on Google. Uh, there were originally 20, and then I went back and checked, and Google actually put Church's Chicken in there as a church. So that's why we fact-check. So I did go back. Um, 19 that I know of, for sure. So, again, a lot of cultural Christianity in this small town, and I loved it. I'm thankful for those people. I'm thankful for that town of Shepherd, Texas. If you want to Google it later, we have a Sonic now. It's pretty impressive. When I was 11 years old, I was in Sunday school. I looked around. I realized all my friends were Christians. Um, they had said a prayer at some point in their lives, and I had not done that. And I never took well to being the outsider, so I was like, it's probably time that I become a part of this group. So in the absolute ugliest blue dress that I owned, this is probably the only part that I remember very specifically of that day. I wish I had a picture. It was truly atrocious. I walked down the aisle of um, the church that had red carpet and mustard yellow pews. I prayed a prayer with my pastor, Brother Baker, and then I was baptized the next Sunday. I continued to grow up into this church. I listened to these sermons that he preached Sunday after Sunday. I passed notes with my friends um, while he preached. I never said I was a great student, but I was there. Um, you guys, by the way, I'm very impressed because that's not how I was back in 
the day. So anyway, I digress. Um, and I didn't know much at the time, right? But what I did know was that the people in these spaces loved me well. I went to church camp year after year after year, whether it was revival after revival. I rededicated my life to Jesus probably more times than I can count. And then when I was 16 at this same church camp, I truly believe that God called me to ministry. So there was an altar call. I received that call. I met with a sweet woman who said, I'm so excited for you to become a children's minister or a missionary, because that was kind of the limits of what they viewed as women. And honestly, I was excited too at the time. I thought, I can't believe this is happening. I'm, I'm excited to see what happens in my life. Later that year, I dated a guy who really liked C.S. Lewis. At the time, I knew nothing about C.S. Lewis. He was obsessed. He read all of his books, talked about it all the time. I remember at some point we had to have a conversation where I said, please don't talk about it anymore. I don't care. I don't want to talk about theology with you. That's great that that's your thing, but I do not care. And also, in my very limited understanding of the world, truly believe that the discussion of theology hindered my relationship with God. And that is the hill that I was willing to die on, and I won that argument. He didn't discuss it with me anymore. I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you that because I was firmly rooted in the theology has no place in my relationship with God, um, but joke's on me because that would change soon. So at the age of 17, I applied to the closest Baptist college that I could, Houston Baptist University, wanted to be with my family. Um, also, I thought I need to get a proper Christian education, so there, there I went. And where else was I supposed to find a husband? I, I thought this is my end right here. HBU. By the grace and goodness of God, I was called to be a Christianity major, and with that, I began a journey of studying theology and the Bible. And again, jokes on me, I asked hard questions and studied theology every single day for the next four years. And just when I thought this journey was over, just when I thought I was done, I was relieved, God called me to seminary. So again, he has jokes, we laugh, um, and we embrace those, those seasons of life. So my senior year of college is what I would call my beginning of deconstruction. Seminary was definitely the height of deconstruction for me. I look back now, and I remember what people at my college used to say about those who were going through deconstruction. Um, never particularly kind things, right? I think the view is that deconstruction is this process where you get to pick and choose what you want to believe. You get to... Um, sift through and say, I don't want to believe that anymore, but I'm going to embrace this. And it's almost this like leisurely, flippant, flippant decision that people think deconstruction is. But looking back on my time, <laughs> I think that is not at all the case. Um, my height of deconstruction was probably the darkest, if not the most somber time of my life. I think I've shared with you before, I really struggled with panic attacks, right? This foundation that I was that I had a faith was beginning to crumble, um, and I was so desperate to piece it back together again. And in the middle of this darkness or frustration, I just kept thinking, I can turn back. I could not ask these questions. I could keep my friendships. I could continue to grow up in these churches that I'm here. I could be a good Proverbs 31 woman or whatever thing we put on t-shirts. Um, marry literally any man and distract myself any way possible because this is painful. So no, deconstruction is not this flippant process um, where you get to believe what you want to believe. 
Choosing to deconstruct was sitting with the Bible, the church tradition, the person of Jesus, my own experiences, and figuring out how I could possibly operate in the world again. But I will say, if deconstruction was darkness, Jesus was my light, leading me, shaping me, walking me through the valleys of hard times to get to the sunrise of a new day, a new life that would eventually lead me to the peace and harmony that I was seeking. Now, I'll bring us back to our text in 1 Corinthians. Paul has a lot to say. He addresses the Corinthian church, celebrates its existence and the individuals within it, addresses the schisms between himself and the church. And here in this passage, he reminds us that all of our questions, our conflicts, and our tensions can be met in the person of Jesus. I would just like to say, it's been three months, I think, and we made it to chapter two. So we are getting there. I will say I I am covering a lot of verses today, so that is helpful, but we were, we'll get through the book. We were, I'm confident about that. So I know this seems overly simple, um, and that's because it is simple, right? This idea that our tensions can be met in the person of Jesus. I took a class in seminary called Constructive Theology, I could go on a whole tangent about how seminary itself is meant to help you deconstruct, just given the fact that at the end they're like, well, now you have to construct something. Um, I'm not going to do that, but just to show that is how the system is built. But my professor said something, Roger Olson, uh, Tom talked about him last week, and I got to fangirl with him a little bit, so that was cool. In the beginning of class, at the very first class we had for constructive theology, he said, The person of Jesus Christ is the lens by which you are to make sense of everything else. I can't tell you a single other thing he said that entire semester, but I can remember that because that was truly foundational and formational for me. What I took this to mean was that as we learn about who Jesus is, we can interpret scripture in light of Jesus's life, his being, and this can help us make sense of how to live. So in our passage, Paul says specifically in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would not trust in human wisdom, but the power of God. Paul here is stating that his ministry in Corinth was not his work, but God's work. It wasn't his lofty words or his creative metaphors or funny stories or powerful arguments. It was simply the power of the person of Jesus. It was his life, his death, his resurrection that brought about change and movement in Corinth. And whether Paul intended these verses to be the foundation of deconstruction or not, I believe that they can be. The foundation of our faith is not built on the words of the preachers who stand before us. It's not found in the ideologies of the institutions that formed us. And it's not found in the emotional atmosphere of the spaces in which we pray or worship. The foundation of our faith is found in the person of Jesus, the power of his story, and his very real presence in our life. So again, put quite simply, Jesus is the foundation of our faith. 
Paul says, I did not come before you to bring theological arguments or treaties. I simply told you who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. I didn't use lofty words because instead I relied on the power of Jesus' story and his love. I think this is really interesting because when we're children and we grow up in the church, we're taught these fundamental truths about who God is, right? God is love, and that is manifested in the person that is Jesus, the ultimate example of his communion with humanity and the crucifixion on behalf of humanity. We learn that when we're younger. Next week, Tom's going to talk about the Holy Spirit. I do believe in the third person of the Trinity, but for this week, we're sticking uh, with God and Jesus. And something I observed on this journey of faith is that we start out learning this foundational truth that God is love, Jesus is love, um, and that is the basis at which we're taught to build our faith. And then we grow up in churches that form us. Um, We study scripture and we gain knowledge as we do so, and then we interpret the knowledge we gain heavily informed by the ethic we're told is most valuable or most infallible. For some, the most valuable thing is being right. For others, it is being holy or pure. For some, the most valuable thing is simply following the rules. So we take this ethic or this foundation of faith, and then we see it through the lens of whatever we taught. Whatever we are taught is more important than that. And we can become easily frustrated with all this apparent contradictions, the tensions we cannot escape between sinfulness and holiness, faith and works, grace and accountability, love and judgment, and all the other complications we find in faith. We're taught that God is love, and yet so often we allow these other ethics and ideologies to control our lives, and that manifests in a way that is in opposition to love. We exclude people from communion with God based on the narratives we're told have, that we have been told and the rules that create as conditions of his love. And so we deconstruct, right? We are taught these foundations, all these rules are added, and then we sit with a tension that somewhere along the way, love got lost in the narrative. And in this passage, Paul wisely calls our attention to the beauty of going back to who Jesus is to find the answer to these questions. We look at the story of Jesus, his gentleness, his inclusion, his condemnation of the human tendency to position ourselves over and against the other, and we're reminded that his goal from the very beginning was to demonstrate to us the power of sacrificial love, brought to the full completion in his death and resurrection, which we get to come together and celebrate each Sunday. So as you travel through your journey of deconstruction, you sit with these questions in the midst of your darkness and the difficulty. Let the life and love of Jesus be your light. When I left seminary, uh, I had to admit I did not know all the answers to my questions. I think they kind of tell you and prep you before you go in, you're going to leave with more questions, and that is very true. Um, But the one thing I could say confidently after all of those times spent in different texts and with the Bible is that I didn't know a lot, but I did know that my guiding ethic was love because of the person of Jesus Christ. This understanding of love has shaped my worldview completely. It shaped my understanding of sin, right? I think I was taught when I grew up that sin is defined as missing the mark, um, and sitting with the ethic of love has helped me understand it in a way that is deeply relational to sin, is to act in a way that is unloving to God, to neighbor, to self. And this is, again, why I love our mission statement, our value statement, um, to say that we are called for holy love for God, for neighbor, and for self. This way of thinking freed me from any obligation to any ethic apart from love. 
I know that it can feel overwhelming and hopeless in the middle of deconstruction as we look at institutions around us that are deeply rooted in hate or power over and against others, and it's easy to feel as though they themselves have abandoned faith in Jesus altogether. However, if my own faith journey has taught me anything, it is that Jesus is at work in those spaces with poor theology, in spaces that are broken, and in people that are broken. When I look back at the things that I was taught in my childhood, I can see so, how so much of it was harmful to myself and to others, and how I took that information and taught things that were harmful to myself and to others, all in the name of Jesus. But to say that Jesus was not still present and at work within me is to say that he was not leading me here to this moment where love has consumed me. I say this to bring hope, hope that knowing Jesus can bring us deeper into love, Hope that we can at least agree with those who share our faith on the centrality and the significance of Jesus, that that is our starting point. Hope that though we cannot see it, Jesus is working in places and in spaces that we may not align with, and that is the beauty of God's character, his goodness and his love for all. I didn't check with my dad before sharing this story. I know he's going to watch it later. Sorry, Dad. I don't have kids, so I get to use my parents as examples. Um... I love both of you, Mom. You're a saint. I remember this conversation very clearly. It was Thanksgiving of 2019. We were in Page, Arizona, which somehow we thought was next to the Grand Canyon. Jokes on us, it was three hours away, so we had to drive three hours to the Grand Canyon. Some of us didn't do our research before planning this trip. It was me. I am the planner of the family. Um, so we're driving three hours to the Grand Canyon, and... You know, we could listen to music or a podcast. My dad's like, this is a time when we are going to have meaningful conversations. I think it was like 8 in the morning, so I don't even know if I was awake at that point. So we're having this drive. My dad gets on the topic of homosexuality, and I'm like, oh, all right. He proceeds to say some things that are deeply rooted from his time period, his history, his own trauma, that were not necessarily loving. And as the resident seminarian um, and pastor, he obviously said that I get to share my opinion on the matter. And at this point in time, I think I was going through my own deconstruction, suppressing any sort of um, controversy I had with my own sexuality, just deep, deep, deep down. And we had a not-so-brief conversation about how I understood the Bible to interpret this, right? I think I don't know why they allow me to have an opinion about most things. So, I don't, And I can't remember how the ending of this conversation happened, but it was something along the lines of, well, I'm going to say that Jesus is the way in which I interpret the Bible, and I don't think he says anything about that. It was not well articulated. It was simply off the cusp. Um, fast forward three months. No, fast forward to the last three months. So three years later three months ago. Um, my dad and I had that conversation. I'm not sure if his view on anything changed, but three months ago, I have come out to my parents. I've shared vulnerably with them, and they have listened to my stories of the hurt and the pain that I have experienced resulting from these toxic ideologies. My mother called me last Sunday uh, to tell me that her and my dad had gone to a church in deep East Texas, um, which I was a little nervous about, but I was excited that my parents were going back to church. That is exciting in himself. And she told me that at the Bible study, they were discussing sexual immorality, which in East Texas, especially right now, 
uh, we can assume that this is primarily one agenda, arguably political. Um, and while I was not told the full scope of what was discussed in this Bible study, my mom said, and your dad contributed to the conversation. And I was like, oh, interesting. Um, but what was so surprising is my dad was moved during this Bible study to speak about how unloving their conversation was. To advocate for me and my queer identity and my pastoral calling. Moved because of the love that he has for me and the love we both share for Jesus. Moved because of the very real work of Jesus in his life before I was born and because of the work of Jesus in me. And I share this story as an example of transformational, of the transformational power of love. I share it because of how beautiful it is that my dad was able to go from a lack of love for a group that he didn't understand to love, acceptance, and advocacy for these same people. And this is the goal of faith, to become more loving towards God, neighbor, and self. This is what it means to be imitators of Jesus who are transformed by Jesus, that we are moved to love deeply. God is at work without us, and yet he still chooses to work within us and even through us by the way of love. In the beginning of this passage, Paul states that the cross seems silly to those who are outside of it or those who do not understand it. And while I initially had a hard time understanding this statement and connecting it to this sermon, I can say that I see it a little clearer now. To say that God used the very churches and experience that I consider difficult and even traumatic to make me more loving is the beauty of the cross. To say that God meets us in the middle of our poor understanding to love us in spite of it is the beauty of the cross. To say that humans have been misunderstanding who Jesus was and what it means to have faith for centuries, and yet Jesus still uses these misunderstandings to help us understand the beauty of the cross. As Paul says, there are many things that human wisdom cannot make sense of. But once again, I say all of this to give you hope that while we may not understand everything and we may never have the answers to all of our theological questions, the story of Jesus would continue to usher love into the world and hopefully we can be a small part of that. Let us pray. God, we thank you for the power of love. We thank you that before all else, um, you spoke the world into being because of love. I pray for the people and the places that we might be frustrated with, for the spaces inside of ourselves that we might be wrestling with, that is through your love that you might lead us to a place of harmony and peace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.